We read Psalm 146. Is that what it was? Somebody help me. Yeah, okay, good. We read Psalm 146. Um, it pairs very well with our text. Our text is actually still in 2 Kings, so let's read that now. 2 Kings 4, 1 through 7. Now a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, and the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, Your maidservant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, Go, borrow vessels at large for yourself from all your neighbors, even empty vessels. Do not get a few. And you shall go in and shut the door behind you and your sons and pour out into all these vessels, and you shall set aside what is full. So she went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They were bringing the vessels to her, and she poured. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not one vessel more. And the oil stopped. Then she came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil, and pay your debt, and you and your sons can live on the rest. This is the word of the Lord. What a joyful thing it is to see the provision and the mercy of our Lord demonstrated here and praised and proclaimed in Psalm 146, which we read earlier. If you haven't been here, some history is in order as we come to this passage. We need to remember that this is a time of great difficulty for those who follow God in Israel. Again, we're focused on Israel as, the, as a kingdom throughout all this time. <clears throat> it's got uh, stories that relate to the king of Judah, the southern kingdom. Stories that relate to other nations as well and the uh, wars and battles that were fought and so forth. But the emphasis here is on this northern kingdom, Israel. And from the very establishment of that nation, of which we're, we're many years into that kingdom at this point, but from the very establishment, there was false worship at the heart of that nation. The king set it up at the very beginning that they were going to worship idols. They were going to worship golden calves, and they were going to claim that it was Jesus, or that it was Yahweh that they were worshiping. So they've got, they've got false gods. Then they've got other idols that they begin worshiping. You have uh, Baal and Ashtoreth. And so you've got persecution that comes to those who are the faithful. Persecution that comes to 
those who are remaining in the northern kingdom, but remaining faithful to the worship of the one true God. That persecution is substantial just prior to this under the previous king, Ahab, and his wife Jezebel. The sons of the prophets, many of them were being killed by the king and the queen. We don't know how this particular man died. This particular son of the prophet who we read about, his wife and sons that remain. It could have been that he was executed for his faithfulness to Jehovah, to Yahweh, by, the, by Ahab or Jezebel and their persecution. Could have been he got cancer and died too. We don't know. But what we do know is that she points out to Elisha that he knows that her husband had been faithful to the Lord. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. That testimony that you have there. Is that something that we want for people to be able to say about us after we're gone? You know he was faithful to the Lord. You know she served the Lord. You know your servant feared the Lord. That's what she says. Right there in verse 1. You know your serv- that your servant feared the Lord. And the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. The persecution is the context. The difficulty of being a follower of God in this kingdom is substantial. But it's not the only problem that this woman is facing. She's also facing a desperate personal situation. Debt. You remember the, the warning against debt that we get several times in Proverbs and elsewhere is that the borrower is slave to the lender. In this case, it becomes literal right? Slavery is going to be the result of this debt. The point of this passage, though, is not to condemn debt. The point of this passage is not to condemn slavery. The point of this passage is simply the extremity of her need. And the way that God provides for his own. It's a joyful, wonderful thing. But the context is awful. The context is terrible. We would never want to face it. Being a rejected small minority of God-fearers. Out of favor politically. Powerless. No hope, certainly, 
in appealing to the nation's safety net. Not for people like you. You understand? There, we don't know the... We don't know what the, uh, what the help was that might be available for anybody at this time. Probably not much. It was up to you to make sure that extended family, you were provided for. And it was up to your extended family to provide for you. But what of the extended family here? There's no mention of any extended family. She doesn't say, and you know all the rest of his and my relatives are gone. Right? Maybe they are. I'd say it's just as likely that they are not willing to help. Whether it's too risky for them to help. Because remember this king, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, is no friend of God. Whether it's too risky to help or whether faithful following of God, faithful fearing of the Lord has led to a rift in the relationships or whether they're gone, there is apparently no other help outside of the Lord. The extremity of the circumstances is terrible. There are many many times that this ends up being the situation. And you can look around and you can, you, can, you can read the news about situations like this, right? And we love it when, uh, when the, the story is a happy ending and, and somebody's provided for, help is offered, and um, maybe you saw in the news after the earthquake, the, you know, an infant was found and, and the rest of the family may be gone, but the world has rallied and that infant will have a home and a family, be adopted, provided for medical treatment that's necessary, these sorts of things. And, and um, that's a joy. Help was provided, right? That's good. There are other times where the story is just bad. My uh, family used to read Reader's Digest back when it was actually a magazine and not just a, I don't know what it is now, but it's not the same thing. Anyway, there were, we, we would talk about how, <clears throat> I think this was my, my uh, grandfather who said this, maybe it was, came from somebody else, but there's three kinds of stories. The, oh, the wonder of it. And the, oh, the horror of it. And the, oh. Well, the, we, like, we like the, oh, the wonder of it story, stories. And we're also very interested in the, oh, the horror of it stories. Right? We like to rubberneck at disasters. Oh, my goodness. I can't believe that everybody treated them that way. And now they're dead. Wait, can you believe? Right? It's horrible. Here we have a story that is, and oh, the wonder of it, out of 
And oh, the horror of it. And the horror is real because this woman is about to lose her sons to the creditor. Hard for us to fathom today. But in some ways, really not that far from our reality. Debt can still be absolutely crushing for your future. It can absolutely take away any ability for you to uh, live a fulfilling, happy life. Right? And in particular, student debt, because you can't get out of that one. Right? And so it can turn into a weight around your neck whether it was foolish or not, whether it seemed foolish or not, we understand that the borrower is still slave to the lender and it can totally change the course of your life for the negative. In this case, it is totally changing the course of this woman's life. We don't know where the debt came from. It could have been that her husband had debt when he died that he would have been able to pay off if he had lived. It could be that she had begun to take on debt after he died. Having almost certainly two young sons that were not able to work yet. And now the debt has come due And the only way that the debt can be paid off is for the two children, her two sons, who would have been her hope for provision going forward. And the work that they would have been able to do to begin to provide for her. Now their work will go to somebody else. And yet her husband was a faithful man. A faithful man who was a spiritual leader of the faithful people. That small group that remained, that God had kept for himself in Israel. And now he's dead. She's going to be left destitute. And we may face similar circumstances. We can look at this world, we can look at the failing respect for organized religion and for Christianity in particular. We can look at the political situation and understand that it's becoming less and less popular to call yourself by the name of the Lord. And we can see that there will be fewer and fewer ways for us to appeal for help. Fewer and fewer safety nets for us. And we can get all up in arms about it. We can get very worried about it. We can get very anxious and angry about it. 
But here's this passage. And what do we see? The Lord is the one who provides for his people. He is the safety net. And so when this woman turns to him in her extremity of need, And, you know, <clears throat> um, <clears throat> let me just pause here for a minute and say, uh, our judgment of what extremity of need is changes as we go through life. When I was, uh, when I was in fifth grade, I, I was in extremity of need, I felt. Do we have any fifth graders in here? Literally no fifth graders? All these kiddos? Okay, six, any, any sixth graders? There we go. We got sixth graders in here. Can you imagine feeling desperate and like there's nothing that you can do? I felt that way when I was in fifth grade because what I needed was to move back to Wisconsin. And the only person that I could ever go to with my serious needs was my parents, right? And what could they say? Well, we don't live there anymore. And there's no chance of moving back. Even as a fifth grader, I needed the Lord. And thankfully, I had parents. And thankfully, this woman had Elisha. See, God doesn't leave us alone. God provides, and He provides often through other people. Through other people. Even when it feels like you're alone, you're not alone. You really can always ask for help. You really can always go to your parents. And if you can't go to your parents, you can talk to me or one of the other pastors and elders and we'd be happy to talk to you. There is nothing to fear when the Lord is on our side. And there is no reason for us to become anxious, although it can feel hopeless. And although we can feel helpless. So maybe, maybe you're facing a circumstance that is similarly dire. Or maybe it feels minor, but you compared to this, but it doesn't feel minor to you. And you think, well, it's not big enough for me to trouble others over. It's not big enough for me to take it to God. I just have to live with this even though it's crushing me. Or maybe, maybe it is this bad. People die suddenly. Disaster can come quickly. 
Health can fail without warning. Or it can come slowly and inexorably, unstoppably, where you see it coming like a slow train wreck, but there's nothing you can do to stop it. Regardless, we know that we can face similar circumstances in this life. There are many people who would say that Christianity and the the good news of the gospel is meant to prevent us from facing such circumstances. That we simply need to have more faith and then we won't face those circumstances. Be able to pray away those circumstances. But God has said, it is appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. And it doesn't matter what sorts of other things you may face in your life, eventually you'll you'll face death. And death is the utter extremity of our need, isn't it? It's a fearful thing to think about. My uncle Nathan was in his 40s when he was diagnosed with cancer of the esophagus. And he was dead a couple of years after that with four children. He was a man who feared God. His death came inexorably. Not real slowly. There was hope that it wouldn't come, but in the end, he knew he was dying. And I remember listening to him preach a sermon and realizing the extent to which it required his faith to die, not because he was facing death physically himself, but because he was facing the thought of his children and his wife being without him. That's precisely the circumstance that we have here, the wife and the children, without the husband, without their father, without the provider, the protector. This life always has such trials, such tribulations. And what a picture this woman gives us of how to respond. She takes it to the Lord through his servant Elisha and she simply says, your servant, my husband, is dead and you know that your servant feared the Lord and the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. Now you know that there's a lot of ways of responding. There's a lot of ways that we can respond when disaster strikes. She turns to God through his prophet Elisha. And we can understand her crying out, can't we? We would cry out ourselves, wouldn't we? Would you cry out if you lost your father, your mother, 
your husband, your wife? Undoubtedly. Would you cry out to God though? Or would you cry out with a plea to God for help? Or would you lash out at God? Cry out in anger? People turn to God in various ways. And I want us to see that this is in contrast to the story that came just prior to this in chapter 3. Jehoram, Ahab's son, the oppressor, turned to God only in desperation. They didn't have water. The armies were going to die. The Moabites were going to be able to defeat them. Jehoram turned to God only in desperation, not in faith. And Elisha made it clear that God wouldn't hear him. Except for the fact that there was another king who feared the Lord there. And so he listened for his sake. Jehoshaphat's sake. With this woman, Elisha's attitude is very different, isn't it? She comes, here's the problem. Now it's in Elisha's lap. Now it's before him. And he wants to help. Because God is faithful to his people. He's ready to help immediately. He wants to know what he can do. And so how does God work? How does God provide? Here we see that God provides through this woman's very weakness. She has what? What do you have, he says? What do you have in the house? She said, your maidservant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Now, I like to think about this. We read the stories of Elisha and we see the way that God works miraculously through him, just the way that he, that he worked miraculously through Elijah. But not all of Elisha's life was full of miracles, you understand, right? He was a leader. He was a prophet. He says, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? Maybe Elisha has plenty of money. Certainly he comes from a wealthy family. Maybe he's thinking he can buy something of hers and provide for her, help pay off the debt. She's like, no, literally, there's nothing. Just a little bit of oil. A little bit of oil is not meant to represent her having something. It's meant to represent her having nothing. Does that make sense? The answer what, to, to what do you have in the house is there's, there's nothing. I don't even have pots that I could fill with oil. I have a little jar of oil left and that's it. And a lot of debt. Your maidservant has nothing in the house. 
except a jar of oil. How does God work? God works in and through her emptiness, her nothingness, her have-nothingness. He works in and through our weakness. That little bit of oil that stands for having nothing is very similar to when Jesus fed the 5,000 from a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. When he asks the disciples, what do you have? And they say, a few loaves and a couple of fish. The point is, we have nothing. Right? And Jesus says, the very proof that you've offered that you have nothing is what I'm going to use to make something. To provide. I think sometimes we take this the opposite way, that somehow the having of the little bit is what we contribute, and God contributes the rest. That's not what we're seeing in this story. Her whole point is that she has nothing to contribute. This, oh, this isn't even worth speaking of. I have nothing. To prove I have nothing, I'll show you this is literally all that's left, a tiny little bit of oil. We don't have enough food to feed these people. And to prove it, look at all the food we've got. Could feed one kid. And the reason that I don't want us to take the story that way, that wrong way, is because it's easy for us to think that, you know, we've got to come up with the thing that we're supposed to be bringing when we face trials. What's my, what's my thing that I'm supposed to be bringing to God that he can then use? The answer is nothingness. The answer is weakness. The answer is emptiness. You're not bringing your part that God is going to then be able to multiply. It's when we turn to God in our extremity and we say, I have nothing, that he says, here, out of nothing, I make something. This is very, very often how God works. In and through our very weakness. Why? Because then he gets the glory. You can't read this story without seeing how glorious God's helping hand is. Why? Because she had nothing. You can't look at it and be like, well, it's a good thing she had a little bit of oil. I don't know what God would have done if she didn't have a little bit of oil. You, you can't look at the story and, and say, well, you know, uh, it's a good thing she was willing to contribute that little bit of oil. Or what would God have done? You can't, you can't look at the woman and, and, and glory in the woman. You can't look at Elisha and glory in Elisha. You have to look at it and, and say, how good, how glorious our Lord is, how caring He is. How comforting this is to me 
when I look to the future and I don't know what's coming. And I think, what if disaster comes upon me? What if I lose my house? What if I lose my job? What if I lose my wife? What if I lose my husband, my father? All of these things might come to pass. Any of them might come to pass. We have no control over the future and we begin to realize that and become anxious. We read this story and we realize, no. God cares for his people. I have nothing to be anxious for. God is with her in her extremity. God uses her very emptiness to fill her. So many things that we put our hope and our faith in, often physical possessions, often money or things that can be bought, think this will keep me safe. This will be my assurance. Insurance is a great product. It can be very helpful. You should get insurance. But listen, if you're putting your hope in insurance to make sure everything's okay, get rid of it and trust in God instead. You think I'm crazy? Should I actually say that? Get rid of it? If Jesus says, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out, should he have actually said that? I mean, really. But it would be unwise, Pastor, to get rid of my insurance. You see, I should learn to trust in God and have insurance. Yes, you should. First learn to trust in God, then get insurance. You see, what I want you to realize is there's many ways for us to turn aside from trusting in God. Many other things that we can put our hope in. Who knows what this woman might have had as her hope prior. And and now she has come to where she realizes there is no hope but in God. And she turns to him. And God provides. And oh, does he provide. But how? Through her weakness. Showing that he is glorious and strong when we are weak. And how else? Well, through her obedience and faith. Our response is often to say, give me the outcome and then I'll have faith. You you know what I'm saying? The, The outcome being, give me the good Show me that you're, that you're providing and then I'll have faith. But she very simply turns to the Lord going to his prophet and then demonstrates her faith by doing what he says. And doing what he says is weird. 
right? Borrow a bunch of containers. Go borrow vessels at large for yourself from all your neighbors. Empty vessels. Do not get a few. (laughs) You you guys, you better realize even that is just such a mercy from God through Elisha. That little warning. Don't get a few. Because remember, when when the jars are all full, the oil stops. Don't get a few. Don't you wish that... uh, Oh no, I forgot his name. What king was it that was supposed to strike the ground? Who was that? I can't remember his name. None of you are going to help me tonight, today. You're my only hope, Judah. (laughs) No. (laughs) All right. Nobody remembers the name. The prophet says, take the sticks... Strike the ground. He strikes the ground three times like a good Presbyterian. You know, well, if I, if you, if I must. You should have done it more. Then the Lord would have totally crushed your enemies. As it is, you'll just get three victories. She's given the nice, pleasant warning. Don't get just a few. Don't get just a few. And then you shall go in and shut the door behind you and your sons and pour out into all these vessels and you shall set aside what is full. And she's seen the way the Lord works through Elisha, yes. And she believes. Now, This is where we get into trouble because we're like, well, if only there were miracles today, right? I mean, then it would be easy for us to believe. Then then I could do something like that. Then then I could have hope for that kind of rescue. A miraculous rescue. A miraculous hope, right? Has God not been at work? Have you not seen the way that he provides? Have you not experienced... The way that he is present in our weakness and demonstrates his strength and his faithfulness. Have you not seen it in his people? If you have, you have what this woman has. She has seen God at work through Elisha. And so she knows she can trust God and so she turns to him. Can you see God at work and turn to him? Do it. She simply obeys in faith. What we want to say so often is, give me the outcome. Show me the salvation. Then I'll believe. You remember when Moses made the snake and lifted it up on the staff. People were being bitten by serpents. They were dying. All they had to do was look at the snake on the 
staff and God would save them. How stubborn we are so much of the time to say, no, heal me, then I'll turn and look to you. Because I'll know that I can trust you. Do you want to see God at work? Look. Look to Him. Do you want to see His salvation? Look for it. Expect it. Do what He says. And see what He does. Do what He says. And see what He does. I think... We have such a beautiful picture of simple helplessness and of turning to God in faith in this woman. Such a short story. So easy for us to resonate with her extremity. So easy for us to respond so differently. Can we be that woman when we have disaster, when we have nothing, look to God for our help. Maybe my favorite part of this story, though, is the kids are helping her. She says, bring me another vessel. and They're all full. I just, <laughs> I just double-checked. They're, they're all full. And what does she do after that? The oil stops in verse 7. Then she came and told the man of God. Now, you're not going to find a lot of people making this point. But all of Scripture is God-breathed. And I just, if, if we're looking to this woman as an example of faithfulness, that stands out. He, she's gone to him and he's told her what to do. She's done it. Now she's got a house full of jars, vessels, pans, whatever they are, right? Full of oil. And it's obvious what she should do, right? But what does she do? She goes back to Elisha. Now what? <laughs> I've done it. Now what? And I want you to, I want to draw the point as we, as we conclude that she doesn't say, okay, I got it, I'll take it from here. Do you, you see that? We receive from the Lord and We turn to him in our extremities sometimes and he's merciful and gracious to us and then, and then, okay, yeah, I got this. I understand. Now I'm going to do this, that, and the other. Okay. She goes back to Elisha. She came and told the man of God and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debt and you and your sons can live on the rest. Now it's not until you get to that that you realize what God has truly accomplished through it. That he has not simply paid off 
her debt, getting her back to zero. He's provided so much that she and her sons can live on the remainder after the debt is already paid off. What a beautiful provision, right? How glorious, how generous our God is in his salvation. He doesn't say, all right, I'll get you back to square one and then we'll see if you can take it better this time. No, we looked to him and he provided. He doesn't, with Jesus, say, all right, I'll pay off your debts, but now you have to be righteous and figure out how to be worthy of my salvation. Now he says, I'll get you back to square one by paying off the debt of your sins. And here's Christ's righteousness for you. Double imputation. Do you see it here? Not just back to zero, not just back to debt free, but having plenty. What has God done? A miracle. Provided not just for her immediate need, but for her long term needs. What a blessed God we serve. Don't try to take it from there. Just keep relying on him. Just keep relying on him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a joyful thing it is for us to be able to come into your presence and to say, Father, we need you. If you don't act who will save us? And so like this woman, Father, we come to you and we say, our debt is crushing. God, save us. Father, help us to look to you not just for our physical needs, but also our spiritual needs. And help us to respond, regardless of the circumstances, with the simple faith that this woman had, to turn to you and say, help. You are our only help. In life and in death, Father. You are our salvation. We look to you. We praise your glorious name together with this woman who undoubtedly sang songs of praise and joy and gladness for years and years to come. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.